We return to the Gospel of Luke this morning. Luke chapter 19, we're going to pick up with verse 45, and I'll be reading down into chapter 20 and verse 8. Beginning with Luke chapter 19 and verse 45. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to, his, to every word he said. On one of the days, while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Father, teach us, we ask, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, it is Monday of what has come to be called Holy Week. On the Sunday of that week, Jesus had triumphantly entered into Jerusalem, and his followers have shouted Hosanna to the one who comes in the name of the Lord as he enters in to the city on a donkey in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. On Monday, he cleanses the temple. He casts out the money changers from the outer courts who are defiling what should be a holy place, a place of worship, what he refers to as a house of prayer. And on probably the next morning, he is met for the first of three times by the leaders of the people of Israel, the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin, chief priests and scribes and Pharisees and elders from some of the prominent synagogues, and they challenge him as to his authority to do what he has done and his authority to say what he has said. What authority does he possess which allows him to make the kinds of claims in regard to himself that he has made throughout his entire ministry? Well, this passage then comes from Monday and probably Tuesday morning of that final week in Jesus' life before he was to face crucifixion. Probably teaching in 
a particular area of the temple called the Stoa, perhaps near Solomon's portico. He's got crowds around him, and we're told by Luke that they're hanging on to his every word. Something every preacher would like to hear about those who are listening to him. They are earnestly listening to his teaching. And in this context, he is confronted by the religious leaders of the city, the religious leaders of the nation. And they are concerned with this issue of authority. And so we have two scenes in the passage that we have just read, and I want to look at them in two parts. The first part is the cleansing of the temple, and in that cleansing, Luke is going to show us Jesus accomplishing several things in that one deed. This passage in particular is going to point out the need for the cleansing of the temple. And that was something, of course, which was predicted in prophecy. For instance, if you remember back in Malachi, in Malachi chapter 2, Malachi goes on and on about the defilement of the priests and the defilement of the offerings which they were offering in the worship of God. And then in in chapter 3 of that same prophecy, he predicts that there will be a messenger of the covenant who will come and refine with fire and purity as with fuller soap the people of God and their worship. And so there was an expectation given to the people by this Old Testament prophet that there would be a day when the temple would indeed be cleansed and the offerings of Israel would be purified. You even hear it in Handel's Messiah, that bass solo, he is like a refiner's fire. I knew you'd appreciate that, Mary. So here is this expectation before the coming of the kingdom that the temple is going to be cleansed and certainly that is one of the things that Luke is emphasizing in this passage. Identifying Jesus as the messenger of the covenant who will come and cleanse the temple. What I want to concentrate on today, however, is how this passage reveals Not what Jesus did, although that's obviously inextricable from the rest of it. What I want to really focus on today, however, is what this reveals about the hearts of men. We see that here, as Jesus reveals the hearts of the religious leaders of Israel. But of course, these messages that we're finding in the text of Scripture are not only for people who lived 2,000 years ago, who interacted personally with Jesus. They're for us. The rebukes and the, the warnings in Luke, which are described in this passage, are just as much for us as for the unbelieving Men of Jesus' day. 
Well, let's think about these things as we move through the the passage. As we look at this account at the end of chapter 19, in verses 45 through 48, we see Jesus' estimation of the worship of his own people in God's temple. We find what Jesus thinks about the worship of his day. Jesus enters the temple and began to drive out those who were selling. You don't get the sense that he wasted much time. He came in, he saw what was going on, and immediately he began to drive them out. And he did it saying, it is written. Don't you love how Jesus always goes to the scripture? It is written. My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. First thing I want you to see here is how Jesus views the, what the, the worship of the people of Israel had descended to. Here on this Monday, Jesus cleans out the temple He drives out the money changers. And all kinds of questions arise from this account, do they not? We're not going to spend a lot of time on these extraneous questions. But one question that is often raised is, is, was it right for Jesus to cleanse the money changers, to drive them out of the temple? Some see Jesus' anger... Some see him being somewhat violent, and they wonder how this can be. I thought he was supposed to be the Prince of Peace. I thought this was a gentle and meek Jesus, the kind you see in all the Bible movies. Walking around like he's just had his nails done, (laughs) gazing up into the sky. Of course, this is only a problem if you believe that anger is inherently wrong. And that's simply not a biblical position. The scripture commands us to be angry and yet not sin. So there is a sinful kind of anger and there is a righteous kind of anger. It is possible to be angry without sinning. And to be angry at unrighteousness is a holy kind of anger. And that is certainly the kind of anger that Jesus was demonstrating here. But as I say, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this question. We don't need to. It's really very simple, not complicated at all. Jesus was God incarnate. He was, as theologians describe him, impeccable. That is, without sin, without the capability of sin. So was it right for Jesus to cleanse the temple? Of course it was. We know that because Jesus did it. And everything Jesus does is right. Now unbelievers might push back against that. But those who name the name of Christ ought not to. If we know who Jesus is, then we know that everything Jesus does is right. And so there's no reason even to ask that kind of a question. But here's what I want to concentrate on this morning, and it's this. In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus is indicating that his people are in the grip of the sin of religious hypocrisy. 
They are gathered for public worship. They go through the motions of worshiping the living God, but they do so while living lives that indicate that their real concern is something else entirely. In other words, they are hypocrites. Jesus even uses a phrase from the Old Testament to make this point. If you look at verse 46, Jesus speaks of his people making the temple into what? A robber's den. Well, if you turn with me back to the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 7, you see the passage from which he takes this quotation. And it teaches us a little bit about how the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, which is always very important for us to understand. You'll see it in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. So this is not a new situation. It's something that the people of Israel have done before. And through the prophet Jeremiah, God called them out on it centuries earlier. Now if you look at the context, you'll see what Jer- that, that Jeremiah is indicting the people of God. Look at verse 8, for instance. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known that come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered that you may do all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have Seen it, declares the Lord. So you see what the indictment is. The people are living like pagans. Even as they come to the temple and go through the motions of worshiping the living God. They're claiming to be faithful to him and claiming to offer up pure worship to him. While they're violating the very law which God had established for them to abide by. Yet the reality is that they are worshiping themselves and their own wills and their own desires. And they're gathering in the temple and they're going through the motions of outward worship while in their hearts they are not worshiping the Lord God. They're worshiping themselves. Jeremiah is indicting the people for hypocrisy. In this passage, as Jesus cleanses the temple in Luke 19, he quotes Jeremiah 7 to let you know what he thinks is going on there in the temple. So again, just a little hint here. When you see the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament, 
Don't just stop with the phrase. Go back and look at the context. Because the phrase that is quoted is kind of a stand-in for the entire context that's going on in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus is doing here. And notice at the, 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 the end of Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11, God emphasizes, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. I've seen what you're doing. I know what's in your hearts. And this is a warning, again, as much to us as to anyone else, against this kind of religious hypocrisy, going through the motions, saying that they are worshiping the Lord, gathering in his name, yet living as if he is not Lord, but as if we are Lord. Religious hypocrisy is just as dangerous today as it was 2,000 years ago and 2,600 years ago and 3,000 years ago. Religious hypocrisy is a reality and Jesus is indicting his own people in that time in God's temple for just that and he's warning us about it as well. But there's also good news If you look back at verse 46, Jesus says, My house shall be a house of prayer. Now that's taken from Isaiah 56. And if you go back to Isaiah chapter 56, if you're still in Jeremiah, it's just the previous book. Come back a few pages to Isaiah chapter 56. We want to look at verses 3 through 8. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, which will not be cut off. Also, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the dispersed of Israel, declares, yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. Now that is a beautiful prophecy from Isaiah. And do you understand what God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, in the Old Testament ceremonial law, eunuchs and foreigners, that is, most of us, Gentiles, eunuchs and foreigners were excluded from the holy places of the temple. And Isaiah is predicting a day when both eunuchs and foreigners, Gentiles like you and me, 
will be brought into the presence of the Lord in worship. And by quoting Isaiah, Jesus is indicating that he is the one who has accomplished that. He is the Messiah. He is the messenger of the covenant who cleanses the temple to prepare the temple, bringing those who are not a part of the worship of the people of God into the old covenant, into the presence of God. So this is a great encouragement for us who are Gentiles because we're being told that the day is going to come and indeed now is when we, Gentiles, will be ushered into the presence of God through Jesus Christ. That was a problem. You see, the... Those who were buying and selling were buying and selling in the court of the Gentiles. So if you were a Gentile, if you were a God-fearer, you'll remember the temple was comprised of various courtyards. Gentiles could come in to a certain place, but no further, and women to a certain place, but no further, and... Jews, generally, to a certain place and no further. Priests could get a little farther in. You get finally to the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest can get in there. All of this would have been taking place in the court of the Gentiles. Jesus is saying, you need to clear out, because I'm opening it to the Gentiles. I'm bringing the Gentiles to worship the Lord God. Well, in this second portion of this story, and we're putting them together because one follows on the other, the leaders of the people come to question Jesus in regard to authority. And you can readily see why these things are connected. Not anybody is going to come in and kick all the money changers out of the temple. You've got to have some degree of authority, or at least think you do, in order to do that. And of course, these people who come to question Jesus have been coming to him over and over throughout his ministry. They've been listening to his claims. They've heard him put himself at the center of universal salvation. If anyone wants to come to the Father, you got to come through me. That is an amazing claim. You better have some kind of authority for a claim like that. And so, here they come. Verse 47 down to verse 8. And they come and they're making this claim and Luke speaks of the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people in verse 1 he speaks of the uh, chief priests and the scribes with the elders who confronted him and this is a threefold description that speaks of the Sanhedrin the governing body of Israel the highest religious court 
among the people of God. And all of them, Luke tells us, look back again to verse 47, they come and they were trying to destroy him. There's the context if you need it. If you haven't figured it out, by this point in Luke, Jesus doesn't get along very well with the leaders of the people. They want to destroy him. Why? Because of what Luke has already told us, verses 45 through 48, they were hypocrites. Their hearts were not right. Their hearts were hard. And therefore they rejected Jesus and they wanted to destroy him because they were jealous for their own position and their own power and their own influence. And they decide that they're going to confront him with a difficult question. Now remember, we've only got a few more days until Jesus is arrested and then crucified. So the vast majority of Jesus' ministry lay behind him. And how many times have we seen these same people, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders, how often have we seen them come to Jesus to try to trap him? And they still haven't learned their lesson. It's just amazing. This is part of the hardness of the heart. The hardness of the heart affects the intellect. So, you know, we've, we've all heard probably the you know, definition of insanity. You keep doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. That's these guys. So they decide they're going to try one more time. And they come to him with this, this question, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is the one who gave you this authority? Who are you to come in and push the money changers out of the temple? Who are you to come in and teach in the way that you do? And of course they want him to incriminate himself. Now, you understand this puts Jesus, humanly speaking, on the horns of a dilemma. Jesus never has any dilemmas, but from a human perspective, this is what his enemies are trying to do. If he says, I'm doing this by God's authority, they're immediately going to accuse him of blasphemy and they're going to haul him off to trial. But there are still things that he has to do before that happens. If he denies that he does these things from the authority of God, then he's going to incriminate the integrity of his own ministry and allow them to mock him and to say, on what basis then are you doing and saying these things? You're no different than anybody else. And one can imagine Jesus giving a rather sarcastic reply to this. It's where my mind goes, because I'm often far too sarcastic. By what authority do you do the things that you do? Now you're, you're asking by what authority I'll, say, raise people from the dead, heal lepers, restore the sight of the blind. Don't you understand how these things testify to who I am? 
What are you, stupid? And they're not stupid. They're just blind. But Jesus doesn't respond the way I would. I would never think to respond the way Jesus does. He responds by simply asking a question in turn. He says, if you look again in verse 4, well, verse 3, I'll also ask you a question, and you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And he's using baptism there to describe the entire ministry of John the Baptist, but you can understand the theological question. By what right was John, who was a prophet, administering baptism, which was something that was reserved for ordained Levitical priests in the Old Testament law? Was John's baptism, was John's ministry from God, he says from heaven, he's using a polite Hebrew form there, or was it from man? And the trap that they tried to set for Jesus is immediately turned upon them. Now he's put them on the horns of a dilemma, and they express this explicitly in their discussion. It's, it really has the you know, flavor of a game show. You got teams, and the team has to answer the question, and so they all huddle together to discuss what answer they're going to give. And their answer isn't very good. If they say, yes, his baptism, his ministry was from God, then Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you believe him then? Particularly, why didn't you believe what he said about me? And so they think about it a little bit, and they say, well, we don't know. And Jesus' reply, you see it there in verse 8, you know, if you can't answer that question, I'm not going to answer yours. Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these Things. And we understand what's going on here. They are sure that Jesus and his deeds and his teachings are not from God. They have rejected that possibility out of hand. But when asked, where do John's teachings and deeds originate? They are unwilling to come to a conclusion. And so Jesus is saying, if you religious leaders don't know where John's teaching and deeds come from, then we have nothing more to talk about. If you don't understand John, you're not going to understand me. They've incriminated themselves. Remember, these are the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel. And the biggest thing that has ever happened in Israel for hundreds of years at least when John comes on the scene they don't have an opinion on. God hasn't spoken through a prophet for 400 years prior to John. Finally he does. 
John comes, the last of the Old Testament prophets, and they don't have an opinion. In seeking to destroy Jesus, they are wanting to accuse him of blasphemy and false teaching, and they are wanting to incriminate him. But Luke is showing us here the origins of their opposition to Jesus. Why would these people oppose Jesus as they do, given what Jesus has done? Given what John the Baptist said about Jesus? Given the way that he has fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, which they readily knew. And the answer is because of the hardness of their hearts. They are blind to the clear testimony that has been given by Jesus and by John. Jesus has raised the dead. Jesus has healed lepers. Jesus has given sight to the blind. Jesus has made the lame to walk. Jesus has caused those with hemorrhages to be healed. He has borne witness to his fulfillment of the scriptures of the Old Testament. John has pointed to him and said, There is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is the Messiah. He must increase. I must decrease. Why did they not accept him? Because there wasn't enough evidence? No, because of the hardness of their heart and the accompanying hypocrisy. And in all of this, the warnings come to us. One warning is this, that we must always, always test the teachings and the lives of so-called religious leaders. Including this one. Discernment is necessary, brothers and sisters. There are all sorts of self-appointed religious leaders in the world. Only those who speak in accordance with God's word and who live lives in accordance with God's word are to be listened to. And so discernment is required. But of course the other warning for us is this. Are we refusing to embrace who Jesus is because of the hardness of our own heart? I do not for one moment operate on the assumption that everybody who comes into this building and sits in a pew knows Jesus Christ in a saving way. And so I want you to heed this warning. The blindness of the Pharisees' hearts are revealed through their hardness to Jesus. What does your heart say about your relationship with Jesus. <coughs> have you trusted in him or have you rejected him? If you reject him, it's because is it, do you think it's because he hasn't given you enough evidence? Do you think it's because proofs are not certain enough? Or is it because your heart is twisted and hardened so that the evidence which is all around us and on every page of the scripture 
is something that you cannot perceive. You are blind to it. You would rather live the way you want to live and go the way that you want to go rather than the way of Christ. There is this glorious testimony of John here, isn't there? It's mentioned in passing. Jesus says, where was John's baptism from? From God or from man? And the clear answer is from God. If you look at Matthew chapter 11 and verse 7 and, and what follows there, uh, Jesus gives this beautiful tribute to John, uh, to John the Baptist. Beginning with verse 7. He says, as these men were going away, these are John's disciples who had come to Jesus with questions from John, but now Jesus says, as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way for you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. It would seem that the religious leaders of Israel might be able to figure that out. But their hearts were so hard and so blind that they could not discern that which was obvious. And everyone who rejects Jesus Christ is doing the same thing. The knowledge of God has been placed within every individual. The knowledge of God is clearly demonstrated in the creation. And yet, what do fallen men and women do? They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And they worship idols. Which means they're actually worshiping themselves. Sinful fallen man, take what is clear and as obvious as the nose on their faces... And they say, I don't see it. No. They don't. Because they're blind. Satan has placed a veil over their eyes. And if you have rejected Jesus Christ, that is your condition. And God calls you now to repent of that blindness and bow the knee to Jesus Christ. If you find yourself this morning indifferent 
to the claims of Christ, I would encourage you to beg God to remove that blindness and to remove the hardness of your heart so that you might see Christ. Only he can do that for you. If you will trust in Jesus, if you will lay down your own agenda and your own desires and live the way that he desires you to live and go the way that he desires you to go, he will give you gifts of blessing that you cannot imagine. Not material gifts necessarily, but the greatest gift of all, which is a relationship with the God who created you. And a life which fulfills the purpose for which you were created. You know, we ourselves today face this struggle of religious hypocrisy. We want to live one way during the week, and we want to claim to worship the Lord on the Lord's day. We want to go our own way while we claim to be going God's way. And Jesus is putting his finger on that religious hypocrisy. He is reminding us that God doesn't want that kind of worship. He's reminding us that that kind of life actually keeps us from being able to embrace who he is and who he has testified to be in his word. May God grant that that would not be true of us. May God grant that we would see Jesus for who he truly is, and that we would love him for who he truly is. And may God grant that should anyone here this day be blind to the truth of the gospel, that Jesus would open your eyes, that Jesus would give you new life. Father, bring it to pass. Do it, we ask, Father. May we be faithful and without hypocrisy. And may those, Father, who do not see, may they see and may they live. In Christ's name, amen.